Good morning. Well, this morning we uh, continue in our series on the life of Samson, Samson's desire. And uh, I want us to uh, turn to Judges chapter 16. I want to read a bit of uh, chapter 16. I hope you were with us every Sunday for this series because we're going to take another step and build upon that. But I want to pick up with that very important conversation between Samson and Delilah. And as you recall, God has, through leadership, through the leadership of Moses, brought his people out of Egypt through a a period of real desert for the people and into the land of promise, and they've occupied it. Uh, God continued to have leaders when Moses died with Joshua, and then what are known as the judges. They did not have a king, and there were 12 tribes, and those tribes were like a confederation or like a United States, you might say, but they were united in their allegiance and their commitment to God. And as each of the judges ruled, we have uh, brought to mind the fact that the judges had real weaknesses, uh, and yet they triumphed in the Lord, but over time, they and the tribes, the people of God, these 12 tribes occupying the different parts of the property that God had given them, Uh, they began to associate and become uh, soft and uncommitted in in their trust and their relationship with God. And so each judge gets incrementally and continuously worse. And when we get to Samson, the last of the judges... Uh, Samson is not acting on behalf of the people. Uh, He serves only himself. Uh, We never see him enacting uh, with the enemies of Israel in any way that unites the people. At one point, when uh, the enemy chases him into the territory of Judea, the Judeans, his, his brothers, if you will, uh, turn him over to the enemy Uh, because uh, he has drawn the enemy in, and to conciliate and to make peace, they hand Samson over to him. But God continues to try and drive the enemy out by empowering Samson in superhuman ways. But his heart, his heart is a real problem, because Samson is obsessed with himself, interested only in himself, acting only on his own behalf. So in Judges chapter 16, he's having this conversation with Delilah. Uh, Delilah is not of his own people. And in verse 15, Delilah said to Samson, how can you say I love you? And we saw last week, this is a 
indication that Samson had professed love for Delilah. How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times, and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and he like, and be like any other man. Well, as we saw and we know, Delilah betrayed him. And when the enemy entered, his hair had been shaved. The last vestige of any commitment or loyalty or devotion to God, he had surrendered out of love for Delilah. And in Samson's life and his relationships, there's this huge hole. His relationship with God. We never have any awareness from our reading of the accounts of Samson's life that he had a growing relationship with God. He had a knowledge, a head knowledge, but he didn't seem to have a heart understanding or knowledge of God. In fact, only three times does Samson uh, mention God. In chapter 15, verse 19, after he is defeated the enemy and escaped into a wilderness area. He's uh, totally exhausted from his battle. He's parched. He's thirsty. He's literally dying, and he cries out to God in great need, which we can all relate to. We've had those difficult times in our lives where no matter where our relationship with God is, we turn to him in great need, and that's what Samson did. As a last resort, he turned to God and cried out to God. And then later in the story, beyond what we've just read, after he has been apprehended and belittled by his enemy, the Philistines, and he is shackled, and he no longer has any strength, and we've been told that God has left him in this relationship that was actually started before he was born and was maintained by this Nazarite vow of, of a vocation for God, of a purpose for God, of a devotion to God. When he gave up to Delilah uh, his Nazarite vow to win her love, to obtain her love, or so he thought, God left him. And he cries out, in chapter 16, verse 28, that he might avenge the Philistines, that God would give him the strength this one time. Because as we have uh, learned and realized, uh, he thought it was in his hair, but his real power and strength was from God. He took, you might say, all of the uh, credit for what God 
had allowed him to do. There's one other time, one other time Samson mentions God, and we've just read it. It's when he gives his heart, not to God, but to to Delilah in chapter 16, verse 17. And as I told you last week, Samson traded God for the love of Delilah, which is a real heart issue. His heart, his essential you, the essential, essential Samson was empty. And he's a man that's trying to fill his heart with relationships, which we've seen, with intimate physical relationships with women. And they're so full of passion, we could even call them lusty, that they're nearly comical to us as we read them. But what I want us to appreciate is this, and this is kind of at the heart of what I wanted to tell you this morning. I think there's a connection between Samson's longing for a meaningful relationship, for someone that he can know intimately, emotionally, and experientially, and his need this hole in his heart for God. He tries to fill his heart with these other relationships. Samson's the last judge. He's the weakest of the judges, and yet he's physically strong. And sadly, Samson is the loneliest In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, long after Samson has pulled down the pillars of the temple of the enemy in which he was chained, God raised up a leader, a king, to lead his people, to unite his people, to represent him, the Lord, to the people. And he found a king named David, a king after his own heart. When God called Samuel the prophet to identify David, he told Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. How can you say, I love you, asks Delilah, when your heart is not with me? That's a question that God could ask of every one of us. But when we have an intimate relationship with him, it makes all the difference. I want us to turn to Psalm 63, a psalm that David wrote, because in this psalm, we see a very different man. He, too, literally is in a wilderness. He is in a very desperate situation. And here, the relationship that he has with God, I'm going to read to us Psalm 63. This is a psalm that David wrote. 
The first eight verses. Oh God, you are my God. And last week we saw that that embodied the great confession of the people of God. It was at the heart of their relationship with God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You can hear that echo in his opening words. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul cling to you, your right hand upholds me. We realize in the intimacy of his relationship. I don't know, how many of you men write poetry? Not many, I'm guessing, although some of the great poets are men. But, you know, poetry is that ability to be totally comfortable and familiar with, with what's going on in your heart and be able to relate it and put it into meaningful and constructive language. And one of the big hits on men in all relationships is that they're just, they, they're not in touch with their feelings. I've shared with you, I grew up an angry man. And even after I totally committed my life to Christ, it took years for me to really get the, the victory, if you will, over that impulse to deal with life with anger. My dad was an angry man. I was an angry man. And anger always felt better than vulnerability. Always. It felt powerful. But I'll tell you, I got tired of the wreckage in my life. I relate to Samson. But he's a man who doesn't understand his own heart. David is a man who understands his own heart. And it's a heart that is grown and nurtured in a relationship with God because personally, as an angry guy, God is the only, only one big enough to bow me, to humble me, 
to make me honest with myself and others, to make me willing to be vulnerable. And when there's strength in a relationship with God, it allows you to be vulnerable and transparent and open and loving and caring with other people. You kind of lose your ego, which is usually what gets in the way and troubles all other relationships when it's not in its proper place. The heart joined to the heart of God is filled with the heart that God has for others. And I want us to know God is the real way in which to get intimate with others. If we get intimate with him, it'll help us to get intimate and go intimate, if you will with other people. Instead of hiding ourselves, we'll be more real with God and more real with other people, more truthful. And I want us to appreciate this in a way by helping us to see the importance of intimacy in our relationships. We use the word love in so many ways. Two research scholars, uh, Beverly Fair and uh, James A. Russell, in a paper reported that they'd asked students to list all kinds of love that came to mind. And they arrived at 216 different answers. So if the way we use the word love is more of a smorgasbord than a happy meal, what are we to imagine Samson means when he tells Delilah, I love you? And what kind of love does Delilah think of when she questions Samson's love, alleging that he is withholding his heart from her? You see, Samson wants all the passion of love. Delilah wants all the emotional intimacy of love. She wants the sharing and telling of the secrets of the heart. Now, this brings to mind a book that I've read a number of times and use and recommend. It was written in 1969 by a Jesuit priest. But John Powell titled the book, Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? At some point in life, and maybe at every point in life, that's a question we can all express at some level or another. Why am I afraid to tell you who I am? In Samson and Delilah's relationship, both want the passion. Delilah wants the intimacy of emotional sharing. without commitment. And Samson seems practically committed, but jokes to escape intimacy. She says, you mock me. And we saw the same thing with his first woman, his first wife, back in chapter 14. I want you to understand there are components to love. Intimacy joins hearts. Commitment locks 
hearts together. And passion moves hearts. These three components, intimacy, commitment, and passion, make up the triangle of love. I'm going to look at the problem of intimacy for Samson and the priority of intimacy for David in just a moment. But let me show you the triangle of love. This comes from Robert Sternberg uh, out of his research that was published in 1986. It it really works very, very well. Uh, Intimacy is the emotional component of love. Closeness, sharing, communicating inner feelings, support. Commitment is the cognitive. That's where you make decisions and choices and pledges and follow through on obligations. It's trust, fidelity, predictability, obligation. Passion is the motivational component of love. Positive attraction, desire, touching, kissing, hugging. Now let me show you a little bit because there are eight possible combinations of love. And what I appreciated and have found through test and experience to be true is that Eight different ways in which we use love are expressed in the different components of this triangle. Intimacy is the most important. That's Everybody operates at the level of intimacy in one degree or, or two another. But if you add a level of commitment, then you have what's called companionate love or deepening friendship, partnership. So liking and caring grows and adds commitment and becomes what Sternberg calls companionate love. In your lifetime, you might have some really deep friendships There's liking and caring and sharing and experiences together, expressing your heart. You know each other emotionally. You know each other's feelings. But with that, it it grows. The deepening of intimacy grows with the deepening of commitment, showing loyalty and trust and predictability and follow-through. And in a relationship of a man and a woman... This is the path to marriage. And in God's marriage, then passion is added. A a love, a complete love. And this is what Sternberg calls consummate or complete love. That helps us to understand a little bit where intimacy is plays a vital role. In the weeks to come that we spend in Samson, we'll look at this triangle in some other ways. But so often, 
romantic relationships involve liking or intimacy in passion and lack commitment. A lot of times, relationships are entered through, you might say, the opening of passion, and then they run off to Las Vegas and get married, so they add a commitment. But the commitment doesn't grow, and the passion wanes, and the marriage falls apart because there's not an equal development of intimacy. Now, with that in mind, Let's return to Samson and Samson's desire. Samson begins with passion and moves to commitment. That's what we call a fatuous relationship. Are you familiar with the word fatuous? I had to look it up because it's not a word I use very often but it it means silly or foolish. It's a silly or foolish relationship that is all passion and then adds commitment but lacks intimacy. This didn't come out as clearly as I want, but let's look at Delilah. She begins with passion and she adds intimacy. So she has a romantic relationship But there's no commitment, and we see that in her betrayal. When she's offered great sums of money by the kings and rulers of the enemy to discover Samson's secret, the secret to his strength, she trades him immediately for the money. Samson wants her love. He's seeking you know, a, a deep companionship. He doesn't understand that he's a caveman, and he doesn't understand the importance of developing intimacy, and I'll explain that just a little bit more, but it's at that point that Samson's lack of intimacy becomes a problem, and without mutual intimacy... You can never have an enduring uh, commitment and passion in a marriage or in a long, long long-term relationship. Too many marriages, for example, are weak in intimacy. Uh, The commitment is there. They they have that license. Uh, The passion will wane because the intimacy is not there. And then you have kind of what's called an empty love with just commitment, a contract love, um, a marriage of convenience. People give up on discovering who each other are. Uh, they, they, They quit cultivating friendship and deep relationship with one another. And we see this problem in Samson. Let me just show you a couple and some of these things from things that we've mentioned about him in the past because without mutual intimacy, uh, here are the kinds of things that uh, destroy intimacy or prevent intimacy from growing and developing. For example, in Samson's relationships, he's seeking different goals than the women that he's infatuated with. He's seeking 
a certain kind of gratification, and they're seeking a different kind of gratification. They're seeking one payoff, and he's seeking another. And because they're going in different directions and they aren't coming together in intimacy, then there's dishonesty, and there's hiding and game-playing and jockeying and maneuvering. Words are nearly meaningless in such relationships. And so when we see this close-up, this dialogue, this relationship, I mean, Delilah, after she discovers the secret, after, you know, Samson empties his heart to her, even talking about his relationship with God, his history, who he was supposed to be, what he's supposed to be about. She caresses his head as he falls asleep on her lap. If you didn't know better, you'd say that was a beautiful thing. But he's headed in one direction and she's headed in another because their hearts are not joined. She manipulates and Samson jests and mocks But when they do come clean, there's no mutual commitment. And the ultimate problem for both of these people and for all of Samson's relationships is because God is not central to his relationships. It's not the basis of the relationship, and it's not the basis of an enduring, growing intimacy because he is running away from God instead of toward God. How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? I want to commend to you that if we get intimate with God, we'll find that there is an openness to our life that will cultivate intimacy on the proper ways with others. And so let me take a moment and look at the priority of intimacy for David Going back to Psalm 63, in verse 1, how do we become intimate with God? Samson gives us some indicators, even from his own kind of prayerful poetry. He thirsts and yearns for the Lord, verse 1. Every other pursuit in his life becomes a dry desert compared to the satisfaction of an intimate relationship with God who fills his emptiness, who satisfies his heart. And David feels this yearning, even in his flesh. He says, it faints for God. In verse 2, we discover that David experiences awakened spiritual senses. His desire for closeness with God awakens his spiritual senses. He's learned to know God more deeply. And as a result, he sees the one who is unseen and better understands with his mind's eye, if you will, or the eyes of his heart, the Lord with a deepened sense of discernment and spiritual sensitivity. You know, the eyes of faith are not 
not like physical sight. And when we cultivate our vision through intimacy with God, that we can discern his heart and know his will for our lives, faith apprehends that and it sees even when everything physical and external shows us things contradictory or threatening. In fact, the eyes of faith for David, not just physical sight, but the eyes of faith influence his choices, his decisions, his expectations, his view of reality. In verses 3 and 4, we see that he has new values and priorities. David recognizes experientially that God is the best thing in his life, and God takes first place above everything else. No other pursuit is more precious. All the world's possessions, power, pleasures, and prestige shrivel before the abundance of the, of the, of the Lord and knowing the Lord. There have been times in my 40-year marriage with Shelley when I have felt extremely threatened, like maybe I was going to lose a, a job and wouldn't know where to turn next. But there was always a quiet confidence between us and that we could express with one another that as long as we're together, with the Lord, we have it all. And that is true. With the Lord, together, we have it all. And life can be meaningful and purposeful, no matter what the circumstances. No job is too small. I really do believe I could find a lively and meaningful existence working at a fast food restaurant or any other kind of work when I'm together with Shelley and with the Lord in our midst. Verses 5 and 6, he's experiencing satisfaction and fulfillment. God himself is David's feast nourishing our needy thoughts and emotions. Remember what it feels like to be in love, to be infatuated in love? No one had to tell us to think about our, the one that we, we were infatuated with, that we loved. Our thoughts automatically run to him or her. And that's what it's like when we love the Savior. The joy of being in his presence satisfies us as nothing else can. I'm, 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 there are little moments, um, an untimely call, a, a visitor that wasn't expected, a flat tire, uh, all those things we can see as inconveniences, disruptions. But when we're intimate with the Lord, we have a whole nother vista of perspective. And our thoughts immediately travel to the Lord. What have you got in this for me, Lord? How can you use this in my life? How can I serve you as Jesus would be served 
when he would, would serve others, when he was disrupted or inconvenienced or life was not going according to his day planner. And in verses 7 and 8, David expresses trust and dependence. God is David's shelter in life's storms. He crawls under his wings of protection and clings. This is the word that's used in Genesis uh, chapter 2, 24. Cleave. The man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. Here is a, the marital intimacy of being joined to someone, and David expresses a cleaving, a clinging to the Lord in total dependence. I don't want to pick on men, but in men, we men really need to be more like David. We all need to be more like David in our intimacy with God. I don't know that you've got to start writing poetry, but, uh, you know, if you could put some of those things that are going inside, telegraph to those around you what's on your heart, what you care about. Be purposeful with God's purpose. Secure in the security you know of, from the Lord. I'll tell you, uh, you're going to bring a lot to your relationships in a way Samson failed and failed to understand because he only ran to God when he was in the direst of straits. And that's a very impoverished relationship with God. Get intimate with God. And as you get intimate with him, You'll get intimate in other areas of your life, and God will flourish in your life and use you in ways that have been restricted, limited, starved. Will you stand with me? You know, I know we all have a desire to know God in a real and personal way. It's the hole in our heart has been described as a God-shaped vacuum, and we fill it with so many things, so many things that end up betraying our trust. God will not do that. And the proof of it is epitomized in Jesus Christ. Look at him. Look at his love in Jesus Christ for you. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you have a yearning, a hole in your heart that only God can fill. That hole in your heart is Jesus-shaped. He has revealed God. He has come in the name of God. And the story of the gospel is that he is God in the flesh. That is about as far as you can go to desire intimacy with you, to become human, 
to suffer and experience the things that you have suffered and do experience in a quest to demonstrate his love, a love that demanded his life, and that's what he has given and offers in resurrection newness of life to you. If you don't know him, I'm going to pray for us in a moment. After I pray, I'm going to stand here along with the pastoral staff, elders, and wives. Uh, if you would like to pray with us about the place that Jesus should have in your life, if you'd like to invite him to be the Lord of your life, we invite you to come. Maybe you need to pray about something else, something that God has been touching your heart with, or on behalf of some other person that is dear to your heart and weighing on your heart. Whatever it is, we invite you to come and pray with us this morning. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love in Jesus Christ, for your presence in your people, your moving, your constant companionship through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the purposeful life, the meaningful life, a life of vocation and fulfillment that is ours in Christ. We praise you today for an intimacy that you've made available that you crave with us, we pray, Father, that we might do nothing less than crave it with you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, God bless you.